It's a balmy day in 1927. A well-to-do farmer outside the town of Guang'an in the Sichuan province of China is busying himself about his land in preparation to dig an irrigation ditch. The afternoon sun beats down on him. Wiping his brow with the back of his hand, he sets to work. Armed with a spade, he plunges into the soil, only to happen upon something firm just below the surface. Feeling around the object with his shovel, his curiosity gets the better of him, and he begins to dig deeper. Soon he has unearthed a number of iridescent green objects that he instantly recognizes as being fashioned out of jade, an ornamental mineral used heavily in traditional Chinese sculpture and jewelry. Based upon their style and motifs, he can tell that they're quite old, far older than any of the great dynasties in China's storied past. He doesn't know it yet, but what he has uncovered is truly extraordinary. In the first three years following this incredible discovery, several of the jade objects found their way into the hands of private collectors in both China and abroad. This sinful practice likely would have continued, and the discovery gone unnoticed, had it not been for one Vivian Donathorn, a Christian missionary and the Archdeacon of the Gospel Church of Guang'an, who, in 1931, became aware of the treasure trove and in turn notified the local magistrate. The magistrate, sensing the importance of the fine, contacted Professor Daniel Sheets Dai of West China Union University, and the three of them, that is, the archdeacon, the magistrate, and the professor, visited the site for themselves, photographing and measuring it. It wasn't long before the geology department at West China Union University became involved, and, in 1934, conducted the first official excavation on the farmer's land. Even at that time, no one could have known the magnitude of what was being discovered. For them, it was simply another routine excavation of an ancient Chinese site. But its importance would finally be realized over 50 years later, when an even greater excavation was undertaken, yielding even more incredible artifacts made of bronze. Welcome to a special current events edition of the History Loves Company podcast. Today, we will be looking at the archaeological site known as Sanxingdui, whose artifacts have yielded startling and exciting new clues and evidence that very well could rewrite Chinese history as we know it. So join me, because history is shaped by all of us. For years, it has been generally accepted, by both Chinese historians and those the world over, that civilization in China began in and around the Yellow River in the northeastern part of the country. Indeed, several settlements first popped up along its banks in antiquity, way back in the 3rd and 2nd millennia BC. But while these communities grew and flourished, it's important to note that it wasn't the only place in China where civilization was dawning. In what's now the southwestern province of Sichuan, a rival society was born on the banks of the Jian River. Were these people Chinese? Most definitely. But their culture was unique and distinct from that of their contemporaries along the Yellow River. It's known as the Sanxingdui culture, after the site where the first traces of its existence were discovered. The story of this fascinating early culture begins long before that fateful discovery in 1927, or its subsequent excavations up to the present day. In fact, it goes back to roughly 2050 BC, when Sanxingdui was the center of an extensive kingdom known as Shu. Little, if any, historical evidence on the origins of Shu exists at this time, but early Chinese texts mention it briefly. It wasn't until the Shang Dynasty, circa 1600 BC to 1046 BC, however, that more extensive accounts on interactions with the Shu Kingdom came about. In both the Shu Jing and Yi Zhou Shu, for example, sort of Chinese national epics that chronicle the country's long history, the Shu are referred to as the allies of the rival Zhou Kingdom, who overtook the Shang Dynasty in 1046 BC. But after this decisive victory, the Zhou King, Wu, turned on the Shu. 
Exchanges between the two lasted for several years. Through it all, though, the Shu remained culturally distinct from their other Chinese neighbors. With the expulsion of the Zhou from the area in 771 BC, the Shu's isolation increased, thus allowing their unique society to flourish. But what did Shu society look like? Based upon that initial discovery and first excavation in 1927 and 1934, respectively, we know that they were quite adept in making items out of jade. Jade, of course, would go on to become one of the most important semi-precious stones in Chinese culture and tradition, where it was used primarily for sculpture and jewelry. However, like the Yellow River Chinese, the Shu were also skilled at metallurgy. Nearly 60 years after initial findings at Sanxingdui in 1986, archaeologists uncovered a treasure trove of sophisticated bronze items, each of which were made in a style wholly different from that of their other Chinese contemporaries. Masks, totems, and megalithic heads were just some of the pieces that turned up. Even more impressive was a 13-foot, 396-centimeter tall tree, complete with birds and ornaments, fashioned entirely out of bronze, as well as the oldest life-sized human figure, also made of bronze, which stands at roughly 8.5 feet, 260 meters, and weighs a whopping 397 pounds, or 180 kilograms. What sets these pieces apart, however, are the exaggerated disproportioned features and angular motifs that define them. The human figures boast almond-shaped eyes, thick brows, and large ears, while the tree and vessels are adorned with geometric patterns that are both graceful and heavily stylized. Traces of color can be found as well, with vermilion, black, and gold leaf the most common colors used. The Shu also excelled at astronomy. Archaeologists and historians believe it was they who identified the four directions with corresponding animals that they saw as constellations in the night sky. The azure dragon of the east, the white tiger of the west, the black tortoise of the north, and the vermilion bird of the south. Bronze and jade discoveries at Sanxingdui reveal an extensive knowledge and possible religious worship of said entities, but as no written records have been found, this remains inconclusive. Because of such scant records, what's known about the Shu is based primarily upon conjecture, though ancient Chinese sources themselves offer tantalizing clues. Several historical legends and mythological stories, namely those told in the chronicles of Huayang, a Jin dynasty, AD 266 to AD 420 text, compiled by one Changku, make the allure of this mysterious kingdom all the more enticing. Drawn from hearsay and written several centuries after the Shu's demise, these stories, though not the most reliable source material, tell of four semi-legendary kings, each of whom are believed to have led Shu at certain points throughout its history. They are Kangkong, Boguan, Yufu, and Duyu. Kang Kong was the first Shu ruler, and according to tradition had protruding eyes, the bronze likeness of which has since been unearthed at the Sanxingdui site. Du Yu, on the other hand, taught the people of Shu how to cultivate crops and transformed into a cuckoo bird following his death. As you can see, the historical accuracy of such tales is far-fetched and not set in stone, but artifacts corresponding with these legends have been discovered. Throughout its long history, the Shu kingdom maintained its distinct identity, even when making contact with other Chinese peoples and cultures. This was put to the test, however, in the 5th and 4th centuries BC, when the kingdom of Chu, a former Zhou dynasty vassal state, began to expand westward past its borders in East China. This in turn displaced the Ba peoples of the area, pushing them into Shu territory. The result was a hybrid culture that, despite the blending of the two peoples, both of which remained distinct. With the mixing of these societies, the Shu became increasingly more open to quote-unquote outsiders, and thus began exploring the realms beyond their borders. 
In 474 BC, Shu emissaries made contact with the neighboring Qin state to the northeast when they presented gifts to the Qin ruler. But relations between the two kingdoms wouldn't always be so peachy and amicable. Nearly a century later, in 387 BC, Shu troops crossed the Qinling Mountains to the Qin capital of Yong, where the two armies clashed in a battle that culminated on the banks of the Han River near what's now the city of Hanzhong. Needless to say, this wouldn't be the last time the two states would cross paths. Between 356 and 338 BC, the Qin state strengthened as it became increasingly more centralized. In 337 BC, King Hui Wen ascended to the Qin throne, and occasioned the Shu honored by sending emissaries to congratulate him. At around this time, a massive Qin civic project known as the Stone Cattle Road was completed. It connected the Qin state with the Shu kingdom via the aforementioned Qinling Mountains, making trade and communication between the two easier. But it wasn't long before the new king set plans in motion to expand his sovereignty. With the aid of both his advisor and strategist, Zhang Yi, as well as one of his top generals, Sima Kuo, he was convinced to annex Shu and develop its resources, using the added strength to push eastward to subdue and conquer any opposing or rival states. Shortly thereafter, Hui Wen sent the two as generals to annex the Ba territory north of Shu, which they did successfully in 316 BC. From there, the Qin armies entered the Shu kingdom and established a puppet ruler in conjunction with the Qin governor. With the establishment of this new government, Shu became increasingly more populated as the Qin brought people, namely convicts and prisoners of war, into the region to work and colonize. This almost single-handedly brought about the end of the Shu kingdom, as its distinct culture virtually disappeared and became absorbed into the Qin's ever-expanding territory, the latter of which would, nearly a century later, consolidate and unite China into a single empire. To this day, archaeologists are still excavating the site at Sanxingdui, as it continues to yield a great many treasures and mysteries. With each new discovery, Chinese history is being questioned and rewritten. Thanks to radiocarbon dating, we now know that the Shu Kingdom originated at roughly the same time as the Yellow River, disproving the notion that Chinese civilization began solely in this latter region. What else will the site and its spoils reveal to us? Will we ever know more about this society, which until recent history have been lost to the ravages of time? That remains to be seen. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. I apologize for the gaps between episodes as of late. I've just been so busy with other projects as well as research, but I'm looking forward to returning to the regular weekly schedule again. Thank you for bearing with me through this venture. I greatly appreciate all of the support and enthusiasm I've received. Remember, sharing is caring, so please share this podcast with other history buffs. It's available on all platforms. For those of you who might be new subscribers or listeners, first of all, I'd like to welcome you to the group. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Tune in next week as we take a look at the civil war that rocked Italy at the height of World War II. Join me then and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.